You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. In Indiana, I was 18, and um, they sent me a, a Gillette Mach 3 razor uh, in the mail when I was 18. They want to hook you. They want to get you, you know, brand represented. And so it had three razors, and it was super smooth, and it had like the gel on it. And it uh, just makes you feel good, you know what I mean? Getting a razor in the mail and feeling invited into the patriarchy, you know, of uh, masculinity. <laughs> you know, it just makes you, I had one mustache hair, you know, us Asians don't, don't really grow in, as you can tell, super thick. And uh, uh, also, within the span of a week, um, received uh, three, uh, three pretty big documents in the mail. Uh, the first document uh, was my citizenship document. So at 18, because I was born in Hong Kong to an American mother, I had the decision of which citizenship I would like to belong to, which country I'd like to belong to. And my parents were very empowering and very, you know, like, you know, just, you know, empowering and let me decide. And so 18, here it comes, mail. It's like, who are you going to, who, a flag? What passport are you going for? And I had to, like, make that decision at 18. I was like, can't believe they let me make that decision. And I chose America. So there you go. Uh, Second thing that I got was a voting uh, registration card. And so it was 2002, and it was just 9-11 time, and it was right in the crux of, like, war, terror, war in Iraq. What does that mean? What does that look like? And my first election that I voted for was Bush versus Kerry in 2004. I was a college student by that time, and so big deal, you know? The razor, (laughs) the citizenship, the voting card. And last but not least, when I turned 18, I got a draft card, and that wakes you up pretty quick. I mean, there's your name on this piece of card, on this piece of paper. looks like a Social Security card, and it's like a number, and it's like... If that guy in Washington this, that you may or may not have voted for decides to go to war and he calls you on that, like, that's not imaginary. There is legal, authoritative ramifications to becoming a citizen, right? And so all at once in this little care package in the mail, uh, you know, comes the very tangible, real experience of a relationship with a government that I had already had a relationship with but I didn't know all that intangible dynamic of the relationship becomes manifested. Like all of a sudden, like that becomes really real. It has grit to it, you know? And so, and so what am I, am I experiencing is, is I'm experiencing uh, both the rights, but also what it means to be responsible uh, as a citizen in the United States of America. And then by virtue of that whole citizenship card thing, really anywhere on the planet, you know? You can't really go anywhere without having to be under some flag somewhere in the the, the planet is covered in governments, and so therefore it's not really a decision if, but it's a decision of where you want to call yourself a citizen because ultimately the world is covered in governments, right? And so here's the, the question. Usually I start off uh, messages with statements, but I'll start off with a question for reflection for you in your seat is if you had to describe uh, your relationship with the United States government, because you have one, you do have a relationship with the United States government, whether you think about it or not, you are on that soil and you're protected by that uh, military and you pay taxes and it's like, we don't want to think about it. It's kind of like a kidney. I don't know what it does, but I just don't want to get into a fight with it or whatever. But you can't avoid. You have a relationship, right, to the United States government. And so what is it? You know, would you consider yourself at this age, uh, would you consider yourself an avid patriot? Uh, No country is perfect, but for the most part, America does a lot of right stuff and isn't doing a lot of wrong stuff. And so I'm an avid patriot. I love uh, America. I love what it stands for. It is um, the, the country that I eagerly uh, uh, pledge allegiance to, okay? That's the first option. Two, would you find yourself at this point in your uh, adulthood a reluctant um, participant 
somebody that just votes because you're supposed to vote or pays the taxes but as least as possible and doesn't really like what goes on or you're more like passive or you're more just like apathetic about what goes on in government? Or lastly, are you an angry protester? Have you had it? Are you done? Are you over it? Do you think that uh, America never gets it right? Um, no matter what, no matter where you are on that spectrum, uh, Romans 13, the passage that uh, Will just read to us, um, uh, uh, no matter what you think about your relationship with government, God has a lot to say about our relationship to government. In Romans 13, it's very direct, it's very applicable, and it doesn't have a lot of loopholes, right? And here's the answer. This is what the answer is, is that in the gospel, we've been going through Romans, and we've been talking about becoming a new human. Uh, being a new human means you have a different relationship with God, you have a different relationship with um, your neighbor, you have a different relationship with your mirror, with yourself, and you have a different relationship with the government. It's a full-spectrum thing. And so he jumps right into it, and there's not a ton of loopholes. It's a very direct thing. Uh, the answer is, what is our relationship as a kingdom citizen to the United States government and the authorities that, that be uh, is submissive citizenship. There's not much loophole. I, I looked in the Greek. I looked for when it says all, you know. It doesn't mean all minus me or minus you. It means all. And so he's really speaking to believers and non-believers, but assuming that only believers are listening to him. Let everyone, verse 13:1, be subject to the governing authorities there is no authority except uh, that which God has established. So there's not a lot of wiggle room for the relationship. To define the relationship of a Christian towards their government is to be a submissive citizen. And there's really three foundational uh, premise, premise, premises, I guess that's the right word, uh, all throughout the passage that he's building this, this argument on. And the first is this, is that we're submitting to the government, and he says, and the reason why, uh, is because uh, Genesis 9-6 will tell us that God made the government. God in Genesis created marriage. God in Matthew, according to Peter, created the church. God, through marriage in Genesis 3, creates the, establishes family as a sanctioned thing. And in Genesis 9, <clears throat> verse 6, the reason why the world is covered in governments, the, the reason why the shadow of every place in the world is in the shadow of a flag, is because God created it that way, past the fall. And in Genesis 9, 6, he says, whoever sheds human blood, this is what he tells Noah in the Noahic covenant, whoever sheds human blood, by human hands shall their blood be shed for that is the image of God. So in other words, you can't just go around willy-nilly killing people, and there is human delegated authority to make sure that I don't just take what belongs to God and is made by God uh, and not have any consequences for it. And so that's the beginning of government, right? That is what government is made of, is that there is human delegated authority that is <clears throat> not just accidentally or incidentally created by man, but is sanctioned and created by God by way of the New Covenant. Secondly, the second premise of Paul's whole uh, command here in Romans 13 is that governments are not just made by God, but they're run by God. So in Jeremiah 27, there's plenty of passages like this, but uh, this is what Jeremiah says, the prophet, with my, with my great power and my outstretched arm, says the Lord. He says, I made the earth and its people and the animals that are in it, and I give it to anyone I please. Now I give you all your countries, uh, give all the countries into your hands of my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So if you read Nebuchadnezzar, he's not a great guy, you know. He's like throwing little kids into furnaces, and he's feeding them the lions, and he's killing lots of people. And God's saying, according to my wisdom and my appropriation of authority, I'm going to, in my wisdom, give the nations to this jerk. This is what he's saying, right? I'm going to give the nations to this government because God is not only over government, but he's in government. I will make even the wild animals subject to him. All nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his, the land comes. Then many nations and great kings will be subjected to him. And so this is the idea. You remember when Jesus is talking to uh, Pilate on the stand in John 19, and he says, hey, man, like, you better answer me because I have the authority to kill you. You remember what Jesus says? 
man, if the father didn't give you authority to kill me, you couldn't lift a finger against me because God is in charge of those who are in charge. God didn't just make government. He runs governments. There is nothing that comes in or through or out of a government that doesn't slip through his fingers. This is a closed case. This is an all-encompassing authority structure of God over man and in between God and man is government, both good and evil. And so therefore, this is the argument. There's no loophole out of it. Paul is making this stance towards the church is that submission to government is the same thing as submission to God. That's, that's the only way to read Romans 13. The way that we submit to government is the way that we submit to God, and that is both good and evil governments. Paul is writing this letter, along with two of the people that are in Romans 16 on his list of prayer people, is writing this from the prison of a government that's run by Nero, who killed his mother, killed his best friend, killed his confidant, killed the person that was trying to uh, get in his way to get into the office, and God's saying, submit to this guy, you know? Okay, and so here's the, here's the tone. So this is it's just very interesting to me, right? Because we went through 1 Peter, and 1 Peter talks about governments, but it's in a different way. Because if you read 1 Peter, it, really the tone is, you got to submit to governments because you just got to do it. You just got to endure it. And there's this, this, uh, this understanding within 1 Peter that governments can and will be evil, and so you just kind of endure them. But if you read, 1 Peter, or read Romans through Paul, there's, there's the other side of this coin, and I'm going to read it for you again, and we're going to slow it down. But he's not just enduring governments. Like what Paul is doing in this, he's actually endorsing government. He is endorsing government, okay? And he does give you the loophole. And this is what we want to do, especially as Americans, is like, you know, what about the bus boycotts? And what about injustice? And what about, you know, abortion? And what about all these things that we need to, like, you know, not subject to the government, right? And, and, and so he totally says it. Like if you read it implicitly, not explicitly, he is saying that if a government forces a citizen, a Christian, to do wrong, then you don't do wrong, you do right. What does it say in Acts chapter 5? Am I supposed to be afraid of you and not of God? If God tells me to do this and you tell me to do that, I'm listening to God. I'm not listening to you, right? So yes, there's loopholes to the thing in the sense that it is always the right thing to do right. As a Christian, it's never the right thing to do wrong, and it's always the right thing to do right. And so yes to all that kind of thing. But the overall understanding is that that is pretty much the exception, and the norm outside of that exception is trusting, faithful submission to government, both good and evil governments, it's a blank, it's just a, it's just a clear-cut, you know, broad sweep of a policy, okay? And so here's the idea. Yes, keep it in your mind. Here's the loophole. If the government permit, prohibits you from doing right, then you shouldn't listen to them. Love them, serve them, honor them, but don't do what they say if they're keeping you from doing what's right. And if they're telling you to do what's wrong, then don't do what's wrong. You answer to God and not to the government. But for nine-tenths of what we do in our tax paying and our following the rules and driving the right way and honoring our teachers and honoring our policemen, nine-tenths of what our life should be is not the exception but the norm, which is humble submission. That's how Christians behave in the public sector. That's how Jesus behaved. That's how we behave, okay? And so here's, let me just make the list, right? Here are all the reasons to not disobey laws, right? And these are the reasons why, like, we, we typically want to distract ourselves with the exceptions of why evil governments give us a reason to not obey them. And then we stop paying attention to the nine-tenths of the things that we should be doing on our side of the lawn, right? And here are illegitimate reasons, if we follow Paul's line of thought, for breaking a law. Here's an illegitimate reason. I don't follow laws because laws are dumb. Not a good reason. <laughs> I would do it better. It's not efficient enough. It's not. I don't care. Follow the law, right? That's not a reason. If it's not evil, if it's not ethically wrong, then follow it and be quiet. That's what he's saying. Two, I don't follow laws because they're secular. You know what God created uh, the church to do? Preach the gospel. You know what God created the state to do? To do good. The state is not for the gospel. The state is for the First Amendment. You can't put Ten Commandment people, right, under a First Amendment law. 
And so we're not going for theocracy. We're going for the lesser of two evils, where there's a sustained sense of goodness within the public sector so the church can do its job, which is to preach the gospel. It is not the job of the government to put Ten Commandments in the schools because that's not a church. And the First Amendment clashes with the First Commandment. So you can't put the First Commandment under the First Amendment because they're two different identities. So the job of the, the government is good, and the job of the church is gospel, and we can't conflate those two things. So we follow laws that are secular. We don't follow laws because other people don't follow them. You know, everybody does this, and everybody does that. I mean, everybody's cheating on their taxes, and everybody's speeding, and everybody's being rude to them. Well, Jesus wasn't everybody, and you're like Jesus. So you follow laws that are secular, and you follow laws that nobody else follows, even if you think they're stupid. And you follow laws that are made by people that are evil, because Daniel followed Nebuchadnezzar, and he was a jerk. I don't follow laws because they're not enforced. Well, they're the law, you know? That's it. So that's the idea. Yes, there's a loophole. If it causes you to do wrong or keeps you from doing right, then say something about it. But other than that, do good. Spend most of your time. I mean, basically what PMAC is talking about is that the authority of the kingdom of heaven doesn't come to be in the world to be over it. It comes in the world to come under it. So most of our time should be loving widows and orphans and not complaining about people in D.C. Right? So that's the point. Like, we're not complaining family. We're contrasting family. We do things differently down here. And so our gumption, our, 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 our grit comes from doing, not talking. So every time that you and me get into an interaction with the government, with somebody that we don't know that has authority over us, then we've been put to a test. And that test, not like we were talking about earlier, is the, the test of will you submit when you don't have the details? Will you submit when you don't know the future? Will you submit if you don't know their intent, if you don't know if they're a sinner or not, if you don't know... Right? If you don't know if they, if they love you or not, it's like, but is God over government? Is God in government? And did God call you to submit to everything that doesn't cause you to do wrong? Then submit. So this is the test. Every time when a police officer pulls you over and there's goosebumps on your arms and your heart beats fast, right? And understand in the climate that we're in, like depending on color and background, that might cost some of our brothers and sisters more than it costs other brothers and sisters. And, and that's hard. I, I, I'm not, I can only speak for myself and only point you to the scripture, right? And I'll answer for me. But this is what it's saying, right? Is that this, I think this is the test. It's three questions, and I'll put them on the screen. I think that every time you get pulled over, this is the question that's being asked of you. Who do you believe is in charge? Is the people that are pulling you over and the people that make the laws in, in the land, are they in charge, or is God in charge of everyone that's in charge? Has God weighed the scale of every single justice situation and used even evil to turn good? Like, has he done that sometimes, always, or never? This is God's reputation. And that's the question. Every time you're given a tax, every time you're given something from the government, like, that's, a question is coming into your mind. Is God really in charge? Because if he's not, then you have to be in charge. And you have to run the government. And that's just too much of a burden for you to have to do. Or that police officer that's coming to get you, right? Number two, how does change happen? That's the second question. Does change happen through, through flags or through crosses? Is change happening because I protest enough and get everybody to get on my side and I vote a legislation? I'm not saying don't get legislation. I'm just saying, when Christ was on the earth and he was doing three years of ministry, like, did he run a protest campaign? Did he see the major mechanism for change within the world to be something that's brought about by guns and ammunition and flags, or was it done by self-service and love and, 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 and bringing cups of cold water? And lastly, I think the final question I would ask is, um, is there anything uh, that any sword or any government can do that can ultimately take away my choice? Is there any prison cell that's too small or any governmental, tyrannical dictator that can keep me from praising God? 
that can keep me from living my life out in worship. And so if that is true, if, if no one can take my choice away from me other than Christ, right, then I always have the opportunity to worship, and so therefore I should do so in every season. So here we go. Uh, Romans 13.1. <laughs> Let everyone be subject to governing authorities, says Paul, writing in a prison cell, uh, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities exist have been established by God, and consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So just like we said, God made government, God runs government, and so therefore submitting to government is a way we submit to God. All evil, tyrannical, all that stuff included, submitting to government is a form of worship that says, I trust God without the details. And so judgment and blessing rests on those stakes. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. It almost reminds me of the Cain thing. Remember what he tells Cain when he says, hey, I'm mad about my, uh, my offering wasn't accepted, and God says, hey, why is your face so downcast? And uh, he says, you know, whatever, like, my, you know, he's, he's frustrated because his offering's not accepted, and God says, don't you know if you do what is right, you'll be, you know, you'll be commended? Without the details, do I trust that God is bigger than the big world that's in front of me, that God's bigger than the big government that's put in front of me? Do I believe that God is bigger than the wave that's put in front of me? That's what's on the stand. That's what's being trusted. And so really, when he says, can the government bring terror for those who do right? Yeah, they brought terror to Jesus, but did they really take anything from him though? Governments are installed to do God's bidding. And even if it's their evil that he turns for good or their good that he uses in your life, either way, all things are being worked out for the good of those who are called in Christ Jesus, including American citizens or any other citizens on the face of the earth, because there is no king that's bigger than Christ. So we trust in that, and we operate out of that process, even when we don't have the details. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers don't bear their sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on wrongdoers. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also matters of conscience. You see, it's a practical thing, as well as a spiritual thing. Like, listen, if you and me decided we don't like the government and we're going to start a rebellion and turn every table and make it all right again, you know what we're still going to have? Poverty, crime, sickness. Like, then we're going to have to run the show. And it's still going to be a problem. And so he's saying, like, man, live by the sword, die by the sword. Like, if, if, if we're going to take the government by force, we're going to find out and inherit the same kind of problems. He's like, so it's practically not worth it. And spiritually, it's not what we're called for. Because Jesus is in charge of those who are in charge. And Jesus is the one that can change hearts. And you can't change them. Neither can polls, Right? or taxes, and Jesus ultimately is the only one that has your choice. He's the only one that, that, that can recognize the, power, that, that recognize the power and authority of praising him in a circumstance that gives other options. And so therefore, submitting to the government is not only obedient, it works. It's effective. It's how God has been rolling out a 12-person movement to Jerusalem and Judea and the ends of the earth and spreading it, and it's not through polls, it's through people. It's effective. It works. So I remember I was in uh, ninth grade one time, and... Uh, I was like, Mackin on Kyra in ninth grade uh, in English class. <laughs> I was writing my story, book report on Michael Jordan's flu game, you know, just <laughs> as you would expect, right? I got a good grade, and Kyra got a great, good grade, and Mr. Krause, you know, it was like Boy Meets World. They just, you know, Feeny or whatever, right? Like, loved us. Uh, knock at the door, a full squad dude just comes in like, Full, like the, like the little microphone and just the taser and just Oliver Wong in here. And I'm just, you know, every, you know my, my heart stops. Police officer comes in, into class, didn't talk to my mom, didn't talk to my guidance, just came in to come in, just 
get me. Just came to get me out of the class. And so uh, I didn't know. I should have been like, I don't have a lawyer, sir. I can't talk to you. You know, I don't know what I was supposed to say. I was obeying the government. So I walked down there, and uh, uh, do you know why you're here, Mr. Wong? No, I have no idea why I'm here. He says, you're here because of uh, internet piracy. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, Johnny Depp? He was like, oh, yeah. He was like, do you live in Crestwood Apartments? I was like, yeah, we live in the little apartments down there. They were like all mocked up like little castles. You live in Crestwood Apartments, 38B or whatever? I was like, yeah, I do. It's like, well, Margaret from down the hall said she has a virus on her computer from AOL Online, and she knows that it was you, so you better fess up. And I was like, a virus? This is just... So I had to break it down. I'm like, look, this is the internet. You know, like, if somebody gets a virus, it could be from somebody in California. You know, this is 1999. I'm just... You guys weren't alive back then. I had no idea. We were lost. We, this, this, this dude literally apprehended me, a ninth grader, out of class so I could give him a lesson on AOL online and go back to class. But that's it, right? <laughs> right? So it's all jokes. Like, I went down to, to like, like, coffee and cops at Starbucks, and it could bring tears to your eyes. I mean, these are just hardworking, like, just people that are putting their life on the line every single day. Like, have you ever talked to a police officer? Like, this is not a joke. Like, these people, it's a calling. Like, I just have the utmost respect for people that are putting their life on the line, and they're in good neighborhoods, and they're bad neighbors, and they leave their family, and they don't know if they're going to see their family again every single night. They're soldiers, civilian soldiers. I mean, they're just at home, like, risking it, right? And so, and so but, and, and, and we all love Wayne. I mean, Wayne's back here. Wayne will pick people up, right, and prays for them. He prays for them in the squad car. I mean, it's like, there's bad apples out there, but there are incredible police officers. We have incredible government leaders. There's just, it just is what it is. It's a hard thing. And so here's the thing. It's like, it's like, if there's a relationship, and I know who you are, my hair doesn't stand up. Here's what gets me, is when the rules come without relationship. It's when I'm asked to trust you, when you have a gun on your hip, and I don't know anything about you. And I must, when you say jump, I'm supposed to say hi hi. That's where the rub is. That's where, that, that's where that is, right? And so what God is saying is like, it's not that I don't get it. It's not that I'm, I'm not ignorant to the fact that there's evil dictators corrupting this world over and over. That's not new. You're not telling me anything that I'm new. But what I'm looking for is somebody that can trust me in the middle of that process. I'm looking for somebody that can trust me without the details. And so here's the, here's the like, the myth, and really the false assumption that our flesh, the bumps on our skin and the hair and our, and our chest is beating like this, because here's the lie. The lie is that submission is the end of power. The, the lie is that, if, that power is a zero-sum game. And if I give you control over what I'm going to do, that I've lost power and you've gained it. But Christ was the most powerful person that's ever walked the earth, and all he ever did was submit to his Father. All he ever did was limit himself in the name of love. And so really what, what, Peter, what Paul is asking you to do, was encouraging you to do, is actually not to lose power, but to gain it. If you can put me in a prison cell, right, and take away my livelihood, and take, I mean, it's just the worst case scenario. Like, like, take me away from everything that I love, and yet I still boast and can, and can laugh in the face of evil and boast in the face of death and tell you that you have no hold on me because death has no hold on me, then who's the most powerful person in the room? That's what he's inviting us to do, is not to lose power, to gain power. He's saying, none of your strings work on me. Your taxes mean nothing to me. He's not saying obey the government because you're afraid of them. He's saying obey the government because it doesn't matter. It's a waste of time. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. They're going to have their little day in the sun, and God's going to come and wipe them out and raise them up all the way he wants to, and then we can get down to business, which is loving neighbors and feeding orphans. That's what he's saying. It's not the end of power. It's the beginning of it. I'm not getting caught up in your little power game and your pecking orders and your political rhetorics and your 
All that mental toxic waste stuff that I got to get online and worry about what you want me to worry about. I'm not worried about you. Because the one that I serve has come to kill death and put it in its grave. And so if death has no hold on me, then the government of South Carolina can't take anything from me. So here's the real question. The test is this. Listen, if the goosebumps go up on your arms and your heart beats fast when government comes to you and if the response to policemen, right, is fear, like not good fear, like bad fear, you ask yourself this question. If God is only in charge when I'm in charge, then who's really in charge? If I'm only comfortable and confident in a world that's small enough for me to manage, that I will listen to authorities that, you know what I mean, like have my best interest and I know them and I grew up with my kids and I grew up there's this like, then who are we, is that really faith? Or is that politics? This is, the, this is the deal. Like there's three things in the Bible that continually put Israel, the waves, the kings, and the famines. God scheduled them to go to Egypt. When Abraham got called, he says, you're going into Egypt because that's where the identity is going to be found. Because I've not called you to be a small people in a small world so you can trust a small God. I've called you in and through Egypt so you can be a small people in a big world with a bigger God. So you can go into public sectors when you don't have all the details and you can trust that God's in charge of those who are in charge. So it's a test. It's always a test. And it's not about them. It's about you. It's about you and who you know and who you call on and where you derive your power and authority from. So this is how he sums it up. Verse 6, this is also why you pay taxes for the authorities are God's servants. They just do his bidding. They're just a glove in the hand. And they give their full time to governing. Give to everyone that you owe to them. And if you owe taxes, pay taxes. And if revenue, then revenue. For respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And let no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt of love. You see that? See? see? That's, where, that's, that's where and why we follow. We're not following because we're patriotic and we think that America is the best thing that ever touched the earth. We're following because the law of love is way greater than the law of South Carolina. The law of South Carolina is the floor to the expectation of what... You want me to pay taxes? I'll pay my life for the enemies. That's, that's how about that for taxes? You want me to pay a couple dollars out of my paycheck so that the streets can all run the right way and that when I get late to an appointment, drive like a maniac that could kill somebody and you lovingly escort me off to the side of the road and make me pay $100 instead of killing somebody and going to prison for it, that's the floor compared to what God is asking me to give to my neighbor. That's just the beginning of it. That's, you know what I'm saying? Like, so, so it's like, this should be easy for us. The idea of paying taxes should be just no-brainer. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love. We owe each other one another's lives. For whoever loves another fulfills the law, the greatest law, the highest law, not South Carolina. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet or whatever the commands say. They're, you know, they're summed up in one command. Love your neighbors yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love fulfills the law. We have to be reminded on this set like when Jesus starts talking about the law, he's not watering it down. When he pulls you up for the, you know, Sermon on the Mount, he's not saying, ah, oh, you know, like, purity isn't a big thing, you know, as long as you, like, you know, don't touch your neighbor's wife. He's saying, no, the thought of even undressing somebody that's not your wife is just this, is the equivalent. He didn't water the law down. What? He, he ratcheted that thing up because Jesus didn't come to abolish laws. He came to fulfill them. And we need to be reminded, right, this is the point in the gospel. The gospel is not... You know, the gospel is, is not an invitation out of law. It's a death to legalism. The, love, the, the, the law of love is way higher than the Pharisees. That's why it says you're going to be more righteous than the Pharisees because you're actually going to, like, hold doors for strangers because you weep over their hearts, not because you want to look good. So remembering this thing is, like, we're not getting into the gospel to run away from law. We're running away from legalism, right? 
And the law has now come inside of us. And so kingdom laws are so much higher sweeping than U.S. laws. And so the idea of, 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 of following a law should be innate to our, our process. Like we're not limitless people of just doing whatever. That's not, that's not love. That's lawlessness. And God didn't give us the gospel to be lawless. He came to make us into love. So I had this uh, exchange student um, uh, in Clay High School that, um, I don't know, I was just a magnet for exchange students, so I would like end up driving them and, you know what I mean? I don't know. I didn't love it, but I did it. You know, so it's like the exchange student, and he was from Vietnam, and his name was Wat Root Savit Langan. Okay, so it was a hot one. So his name was Wat Root Savit Langan. He's probably 80 pounds, and he was like, you know, six foot two and just a string bean, you know what I mean? And, you know, not the most, you know, socially adept person, not the smartest person, you know, you know, pretty hardworking guy. And, and anyways, he was like, I know that the name is hard, so you can just call me Pop, okay? So... You know, I drove him around in my core. I called him Pop. Okay, this is classic, right? Do you have exchange students? Like, he came in, no English, like, no understanding of American culture, didn't know how to do any of this stuff, and, like, starts off, he's, like, D minus, right? And, like, how many of you guys have ever seen this? By May, the dude is speaking fluent English, shredding us on, this, on the SAT, like, killing us, just, like, <laughs> exposing us, you know? And you interview him afterwards, and he's like, oh, this is easy compared to, you know, we were working like, you know, I have my Russian accent now or whatever, but he's like, we work not 10 hours a day, you know, and he's like, you guys are just working, having time off and going to Starbucks, he's like, I just study and that's easy to me, you know, like, like this is what I think Paul's saying, it's like, if we're having a hard time following the laws of the government, think about the laws of heaven that expect utter selflessness for one another, this isn't, we're being exposed. If we're having problems submitting to the U.S. government, we're going to have a hard time submitting to Jesus, right? He wants all of it. He doesn't want 10% of your money. He wants all of your money, all of your time, all of your thoughts. Like, we, we are not like, you know, I'll just go down there and make sure my licenses are renewed. Like, I want all, I have all the details on your life. And you don't just give me some of your life. Like, you, you, you're giving all of your life. This is an expensive thing because love loves to submit. Let me tell you something. So I was in a, in a youth group, and uh, this guy, he got in trouble because um, he's 23, and he's given a driver's lesson to a 15-year-old girl in the car. And it's on the youth group property, and there's kids around, but he didn't tell me about it, and he didn't tell anybody about it. And there's no harm, no foul. And like, I, I thought about it. You know, it's like if he was at the Thanksgiving party, and it was his cousin or something, I'm sure we're fine. But we're on youth group property, right? So it's like, there's just bells. Is there flags? In you? I had flags. Did you guys have flags when I tell you that? There's just flags, okay? And it's good guy and, I mean, true heart and just wasn't thinking through discernment. 23 years old, he's a guy, okay? He's 23 years old, he's a guy. He's just, we're not, we're trying to catch up, you know? And so um, it's like, because one, there's gray relational dynamics. Like every time you're alone with a female, you pray with a woman, there's something going on. There's just, it, there's just dynamics and you have to be mindful of that. And two, you know, and I know it sounds like optics and politics, but like we're in a big group. There's 200 people, and everyone's seeing that, and that's setting a tone. Like if that's the standard here, then what if I push the standard and it goes over here? And three, you didn't check in, and it's like on the rules. You know you're not supposed to be alone, you know? So you got to take a break from youth ministry. And, and the whole thing, I remember, was like, but like Jesus had 16-year-old disciples. That was his whole, and the thing is like, and I don't understand why we have to be so political and optics-minded, and it's just like, why do we have to get all ruly about things? You know, these rules and all this stuff. And I was just like, okay, and I walked him through the whole thing, but I was like, here's the deal. It's like one of the greater things that happens in the church is that it's not just 12 people, it's thousands. 
So Paul's writing letters now, and it's about dietary things and like what you do now like affects your neighbor and how it looks on Instagram. I don't care if you meant it that way. It just matters, and it communicates, and we're not just responsible now for going the distance of 12 people. I'm responsible for thousands, and I have to be responsible for love and that status, right? And so sometimes the pressure of what you would call tyranny is actually just unity. It's, it's relationships have traveled to different rules to help you understand that you're not your own, and you don't make decisions in a vacuum, and you're part of a body, and you're not just a loose confederation of, of beings. You answer to everybody, right? So rules are relationship. They're relationship when they go beyond the, the premise of, 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 you know, connection, but they, they are part of relationship. Like these rules have, have, have reasons for them. And, and, and so love doesn't run from rules, right? It runs towards relationships, and those rules help us find our way. And so in thousands of people, you can't just do whatever you want anymore. And that's not the government talking to you. That's the kingdom talking to you. Because this is a united, it's not just like, like the gospel is not just inviting us into a family, it's inviting us into a united kingdom where there's, there's you know we're going to get into heaven, there's billions of people. It's not just you and your small group, it'll be billions of people. And somehow the overarching umbrella of the kingdom of heaven causes a unity in which me to the 999th millionth person, I have responsibility to that person. And so sometimes that will look like subjecting your, your, what you want to do. And so anyways, so he closes this up and he gives a prophetic word to, to close out this little passage. And do this, he says, understanding the present time, like know your moment, know where you are and not where you're not. This is the present time. He says, the hour has already come to you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation, it's nearer than you think. Our salvation is now nearer than when we first believed. He says, the night is over, the day is coming. So let us put aside the deeds of the darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us then behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. And do not think of uh, how to gratify the desires of the flesh, um, but how to clothe yourself in Christ. So he closes with this little prophetic image. It's real simple. Cockroaches and everything. Everything goes bad in the dark, you know? You go on vacation, you turn on the light, just like you see. <laughs> it exposes things. Right? So the light, he's saying, that's what salvation is. Salvation is this big moment where all the wrongs are made right, and every Nebuchadnezzar, and every Babel, and every Pharaoh, and every Pontius Pilate, and all, those, all that stuff is going to come into light. Every, it's, it's all coming to light. And no man can stop it, and no man can expedite it, and no man can, can, can duplicate it. It's just the light. It's God's justice. Like, like he's the one that's going to be the king of nations. Okay? And what he's saying is that as the light creeps over the horizon, the light is here right, to reveal and expose the world, but it shouldn't expose the church. The church should be doing their day-to-day life as though the light's already here. We're not waiting on holy, righteous kings to start behaving like righteous sons. We start behaving now. So, so the light is going to expose everybody, but what he's saying is the light is meant to expose the world. It shouldn't be exposing the church. And if we don't have it in our hearts to be able to trust God as big enough and bigger than our world to submit to authorities, both good and evil, what he's saying is we're nowhere prepared to submitting to, to the king of kings in the kingdom of heaven. And so the dawn is coming, and what he's saying is like, will there be Daniels? Will there be the people that have like cultivated a sense of security and secret place that I fear no one because I trust God? This is what he's going. Like faith is the equivalent of fearlessness in Christ. You cannot, it's not, it's not faith because the circumstances are right. It's faith in the middle of the famine, storm, waves, and Pharaoh 
that my God is bigger than the world around me. It's him putting and telling narratives, of course the world's bigger than you. How could he be bigger than the world if the world's not bigger than you? If he put a small people in a small world, then God just needs to be small. But he's put you in a world that is, doesn't make sense, it's evil, it's unjust, it's dark, and he knows it ahead of time so you can start like behaving like light in the middle of darkness. So you can be stars that shine out, a Daniel, a Joseph, a Moses. So, so here's, here's what I think you know, we could interpret it if we took it home. It's like, look, if we were in a legalistic framework in a time period when everyone was being polite and nice and, 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 and putting on the acts of love without the contents of it, it would be harder to shine, wouldn't it? Because everybody's faking it. I think Paul would come to us and say, do you have lawlessness just rampant in your schools right now? Right? Is there just, is there just, isn't there just chaos? Have you been online? It's just lawlessness. People don't respect their parents. People don't respect themselves. People don't respect their neighbor. They think that everybody should revolve around them. He's like, you know what the best time to shine is? In a dark season. This is the season. He's going, the day is near. Just, it's like darkness shouldn't compel us to be darker. Darkness should compel us to be all the more brighter because this is our season, man. If we were in a season of compliance and everybody was trying to conform and everybody's trying to do good things and fake like they're Jesus, that's hard to compete with. You know what's really easy to compete with? Paying your taxes and not complaining about it. You know, if you look at somebody right now in a culture of loneliness and a love famine like this, you just look at somebody and spend 10 extra seconds with them. You know how loud that is these days? Used to be you have to get a Billy Graham crusade and get somebody up there preaching. You need to just say something nice to them and their heart will melt because people are that hungry and thirsty for some love. He's like, if it's dark, then get brighter. So this is our opportunity. Yes, if there's topics that we're passionate about, you know, civil rights and sexuality and gender and abortion and these things like, yes, like the government has actually asked us to participate. So we're actually win-win with that. Like, Act for justice and act as a citizen within the United States government. But for 90% of your time, the best protest is do it. Amen. Don't complain, contrast. Be different, be a light. You know, love the one in front of you, do the next thing. And, and so this is what it would look like. It's like this is how change is happening, not through poll movements, but through people movements. And God has equipped us to do such a thing. Um, I'll, I'll be very, very brief to close and... and um, and uh, we'll, 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 have, uh, we'll have time for worship and prayer. But um, just a last thought, even in speaking of, of the Dixons being here to, today, is uh, um, Mr. Brooks, uh, principal at, at Southside, one of the last times that I worked there as a teacher, um, I got less and less intimidated by him over, over the years. He used to put you in that small chair, and his chair was, like, way bigger than yours. And so, like, you remembered you're a man. Like, I'm 26 here, but for some reason, you're just still Mufasa to me, and I can't get around it. So... Um, but I remembered a distinct moment, like, coming in towards the latter times of my teaching there to realize it's just a man, right? And I remember all the times, you know, whether it be from internet viruses or whatever, you know, you'd get called down to the principal's office and you just, like, you just get tight, you know? Like, you're just so, so scared. And it's just like, a man is just a man. It's like those little notebooks and he's just trying to make it and he doesn't make enough money and he's got to be at the football game and the basketball game and the gymnastics game and he's got his thing on the thing and he's just trying to keep his life in order and just swim with the duck, you know? legs underneath it, you know? And it, and it really dawned on me as like the years went on. I went into the last meeting with Mr. Brooks, the exit meeting, and I'm like, you know what? It's like Mr. Brooks in this principal seat has the most authority like in this whole building. Like he can call any shots he wants to hire and fire anyone. He can direct the thing, right? He's the most, power, the most authority. But the more I did teaching, the more I understand where I sat and where the students were, he probably didn't have the most amount of power in, in the school even compared to me. Because the influence of a teacher towards the student Ultimately, at the end of the day of how that student perceives the teacher and how that student is learning and how they're engaging in the classroom, he's going to spend one hundredth of the time with Mr. Brooks as he's spending with me 
And therefore, that teacher has more authority. And so the big lie about authority and power is that authority and power comes from the, down, from the top down. But Jesus practiced it rightly in saying that power comes from underneath. That we don't come just in the world to be of the world, but of the world not to be over it, but to come underneath it. And that is the vision that is put out in front of us. In fact, the volunteer at the school might actually, because they don't have any strings attached, have more authority and power than the teacher does. Because they have nothing to lose and nothing to gain. So everything that comes out of their mouth has more authority in a spiritual way. The foster parent might have more authority than the real parent in some cases because they're going out of their way and the foster kid might mouth off to the parent, but they're not going to mouth out to the foster parents usually or they're less likely to. That the neighbor, just a kind gesture in the neighborhood does so much more than a police officer. You see where I'm going with this? Like sitting in the underseat of, th- of power is not to take power away, but it's to actually give it back to its full authority of who we are. The employees in your workplace probably have more authority than the boss. The members of this church have more authority probably than the elders. You dictate the pace and the faith and the climate of the church more than me because everybody's like, oh, the preacher, he's supposed to say that kind of stuff. That's the leverage that you have, right? So that's the question. Every time we come into any place of authority, father, parent, coach, like this is the floor, man. Loving your neighbor and loving people above you is the floor. (laughs) He's so high above us and he expects us to submit without any answers. And so it's this test, you know, Jesus is in charge of your days. He's in charge of the people that are in charge over your life. Jesus is the advocate for change. He's the only one that can change hearts. And we can legislate and politicize and theocratize, and none of it ever changes anything except for the power of the Holy Spirit at your table with the Holy Spirit and generosity and hospitality combined. And so you're changing the world through Jesus. And Jesus ultimately is the only one that has your choice and deserves your choice. That you, you and even in the darkest prison cell, can still cry out to Jesus and it has more authority than even some of the state of the unions that go on in October when people get elected. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.